Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Okay, here we are. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. What we're going to do, and I'll introduce, uh, before I begin to actually teach, I'll introduce what we're going to do right now. We're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to give to you as thorough a Bible study as I can related to that. I'll be giving a lot of scripture and things of that information, but I will also be closing, I'll be closing this study by giving to you what Christian baptism is, because what we're going to be looking at is uh, the baptism of Jesus Christ and uh, looking at its context, what it means, the application. But I want to close, just so that you know, I want to close this by speaking about baptism because we're going to have baptism before we leave. And so rather than bringing everybody back into the room, as I normally do, to give a specific study on baptism, I'm going to give you a study for, from uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, but I'm going to conclude it by giving to you a separate kind of study that's related in practical application, but not found here. So understand that. I'm not going to be giving to you uh, Christian baptism in, in, in the context of this because this is the baptism of Jesus. I want that to be clear, but I'm going to close by talking of Christian baptism, tying it in in some ways. But what we're looking at is the baptism of Jesus Christ as performed by John the Baptist. And again, by closing, I'll be moving into application as to what we'll be doing today around 1 o'clock. With that said, beginning here in verse 9, Mark chapter 1, reading to verse 11. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the wilderness, rather in the Jordan, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice from heaven, then came a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So let me give you a little bit of a background reminder. We just started the study as has become my, my normal way of teaching. Uh, for those who were not with us last week and all, I can give you some filler to give you some information related to what, what's, what's taking place here in chapter 1. Seeing that we just began the study of the Gospel of Mark, I'm able to do that. And I will always do that every time we teach. Some of you know that. Every time I teach, I will bring you back to some basic things so that you have the context and know what's taking place. And so as we do that, we need to remember that Mark began his Gospel that, uh, by revealing that Jesus Christ is Messiah, the Son of God. That's how he began his gospel. And so when he spoke of Jesus being the Son of God, that was a way of revealing that Jesus is actually royalty. He's the Son of the King of the universe. 
And as I was pointing this out to you last time we were together, uh, as kings did uh, during Mark's day, Jesus had someone who went before him preparing the way. You see, a messenger would prepare the way for the king and would, in preparing the way would also be um, making sure that people knew that the king was on his way, is about to arrive. And he would say that. He would say, the roads need to be ready because the king is about to arrive. And so as we were going through the first few verses of, of Mark, I had pointed some things out from, from companion gospels. And in Luke chapter 1, in verse 17, there it reads that he, that John will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John was not simply overseeing the clearing of debris from a road. He was calling people to personally clear out the debris of their lives. So John came preaching a message of repentance and baptizing those who repented. That's why his baptism is called a baptism of repentance. All the while he was pointing people to the one who was about to come. That would have been Messiah. And so at that point, the Messiah had not yet arrived, but John was saying his arrival is very, very soon. So in this section, Mark is going to present Jesus' baptism as a kind of royal coronation. John had said that he was unworthy to stoop and unstrap his sandals. So he's saying the one who is about to come is a great person. He is that great a person. So here God is going to himself testify that Jesus is the coming one, that his son is Messiah. And so that's how it begins here in verse 9 when it says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So it came to pass in those days. By this time, John had been preaching and baptizing for several months. And as John was performing his ministry, at the right time, Jesus came to John. Now, notice how in verse 9 it says that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, he said that as a geographic marker, if you will, so that his non-Jewish readers would, would understand that Jesus came out of the north. Now, Nazareth was in his, and is located in northern Israel. And we know that in our reading of the, the scriptures, we know that, that Nazareth was the home of Mary and her husband, Joseph. This was a small town, inconsequential, populated by a large percentage of Gentiles. Why is that in, important and interesting to state? Well, Gentiles were recognized as pagans because they were outside of the promises of God. That's what Paul made clear when he was speaking to the Ephesian church and he was writing to a church that was made up of Gentiles. And so in Ephesians 2, verse 12, he said, Remember that at that time you, speaking to them as Gentiles, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So that's how Gentiles were looked at in those days. They were looked at as being pagans. They were without hope, they were without God, they were outside of his promises. And so Nazareth was largely populated by Gentiles. The area, the region in the north had a lot of Gentile population. And so that's why it's important as we read here how it simply says 
that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Because it had a large Gentile population, it also had a poor reputation. Remember in the Gospel of John in chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, how it says that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why, why would he say that? Because Nazareth had a bad reputation. It was a, 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 a place that was populated by a lot of pagans. And so the Jews would, would speak of that amongst themselves and say, oh, nothing good can come out of that place. You see, during this time, to call somebody a Nazarene was to say that they were despised. Nazareth was a small village. It had a population of around 150 residents. And so no one would think that such a city would produce anything or anyone. That was noteworthy. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a village, 150 people, mostly pagan Gentiles. Can anything good come out of that place? Who would think that somebody, something good would come out of Nazareth? I, I was remembering many years ago now in the early 80s when our church was still young, I had asked my pastor, Chuck Smith, who was the pastor at that time of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and was my pastor, I had asked him to come and do a Wednesday night Bible study. We were meeting at the Ontario High School in the city of Ontario, obviously, and, and I said, Chuck, could you come and do a Wednesday night? And, and Chuck had been out before as our church had begun and all, and hadn't been out for a while, so I said, could you come out and, and do a Wednesday night for us? And so he said, yes, and he came, and, and I remember as we went to the high school and walked into the high school. It was an auditorium that sat about 1,200 people, and, and all the seats were taken. There were people sitting on the floor up in the front because Pastor Chuck was coming, and they wanted to hear Pastor Chuck teach. They never did that for me. But anyway, um, <laughs> they came to hear my pastor, and it was just a beautiful, a beautiful night of, of worship and, and Bible study, and God was moving in a special way. And uh, I was thrilled in my heart. And as we walked out, he and I walked out the front, and I was walking with him to his car. Under his breath, I'll never forget how he said this. Under his breath, I heard him whisper to himself, who'd have thought Ontario? That's why we moved. No, big... <laughs> who'd have thought Ontario? It didn't have a reputation. Didn't have anything noteworthy that's kind of the attitude that we have in Scripture because Nazareth was a city filled with pagan Gentiles, but percentage-wise, but was, it was small. It would really be more under the category of a small village and all. And so it didn't have a good reputation whatsoever. No one, no one would think that anybody would, would come out of there that amounted to much. So it's significant, guys. It's significant that Jesus came out of that village. You see, even as Nazareth was disrespected, despised, and rejected, even so Jesus Christ was. Remember Isaiah 53, verse 3, how it says he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. It was, it was meet, it was fitting that Christ would come from a despised village, a disregarded village, 
because Jesus himself was despised. The fact that he came from such a village would surprise the religious leaders because they would expect Messiah to come from Jerusalem. That was a prestigious city in Israel. That was where the temple was. Obviously, Messiah ought to come from this great city, but no, he didn't. He came out of a, a despised and rejected city. And so as I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think for a moment how that God has a way of taking what seems to be insignificant and turning it around and using it for his glory. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has a way of taking something that is, is really not noteworthy, not known as valuable. God has a way of taking that and using it for his own means to bring glory to himself. He has a way of doing that. It, it, it's not your eloquence. It's not your intelligence. It's not your capacity to influence. All of those things can be usable in the hands of God. But what he actually is looking for is somebody whose heart is his. And he can use that person. And even if it's just, you know, you're inconsequential, doesn't mean that, that God can't use you. And sometimes God has a way of using people that nobody even know of. There was a man named Mordecai Ham that many of you have never heard of. Uh, some have, I know. I've asked people before, how many of you have ever heard of Mordecai Ham? And I'm not talking about ham and eggs. I'm talking about Mordecai Ham. And uh, how many of you have heard of Mordecai Hams? There's some, very small amount. Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was an evangelist. Mordecai Ham gave a message that a young man, 17 years of age, listened to came and responded to and gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Very few people know Mordecai Ham. How many of you have heard of Billy Graham? Mordecai Ham is the one who brought Billy Graham to faith in Jesus Christ. There was a, 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 a preacher. He wasn't even really a preacher. What he was is a member of the church, but the storm was so great that uh, the preacher that normally would come to church didn't make it to church that day. And so one of the guys who was part of the church, a deacon, I believe, gave a message, and as he was giving the message, this, this guy, I don't even know his name, but as he was giving the message, uh, as I read the account of this, it says that he, the writer says that he pointed his long, bony finger at this young man, uh, a young man in the front row there, and he said, son, he said, you look miserable. He said, and you will be the most miserable person in hell if you don't give your heart to Christ. Now, isn't that nice? I mean, it's stormy, and I made it to church, and you're telling me... And that man, that young man, his name, Charles Spurgeon. There's a way that the Lord moves with the inconsequential or no names to reach people who become names. That's how it works. And so D.L. Moody is a shoe salesman, and he's in the back looking for some shoes fill and order when his Sunday school teacher comes in and just wanted to make sure that D.L. knew Jesus Christ. And there in the back of a shoe store, D.L. Moody was led to faith in Christ and became one of the greatest American evangelists that this nation's ever known. Do not think of yourself as being inconsequential because in the hand of God, you can do mighty things because God will get all the glory. And so 
as we look at Nazareth, we see a city that is inconsequential, so much so that its reputation being so poor that it said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Chino? No, let's think of another. Can it? How about Chino Hills? Anything from Etiwanda, Rancho Cucamonga, Upland? Can anything good? Yes, if God is in it, why not? And God can use you. And don't forget that. God can use you. Don't forget that. And so as this is taking place here, God has a way of taking what seems to be insignificant and using it for his glory. And so it says again in verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to the north and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Baptized by John. The Jordan River is in, if you're looking at a map, it's on the eastern border, if you will. It's in eastern Israel. And when you go to Israel, they'll tell you this. It's fed by three tributaries. Uh, one source, one tributary is called the Hasbani. It's on the western slope of Mount Hermon. Another is called the, the Springs of Ledun. The third is Banyas or Panias, but we, it's Banyas. It's uh, in Caesarea Philippi. We go there every time we go to Israel. And uh, these are the three tributaries that empty into the single Jordan River. And so Jesus is being baptized in this river called the Jordan. The word Jordan means descending from Dan, Dan being the northern tribe. So it's coming from the north and descending as it goes south. Well, John is busy ministering. He's baptizing. And uh, Jesus comes to him. And the fact that John was baptizing, well, to the Jews, that was unusual because the Jews did not get baptized. You see, only Gentile converts to Judaism received that kind of baptism. And so they would not have understood exactly why John is baptizing Jewish people. They knew that they would have to have, uh, when they're baptized, that that would have been a confession that they're no better than Gentiles. And, and they, would, they were not really willing to do that. Are you kidding me? They're without hope in this world. They're without God in this world. They're without the promises of God. They're without the prophets of God. They're without the miracles of God. They're without all of our benefits. How can you say, we who have the law, we who have been practicing the law, we who have the priesthood, we who have the temple, how can you say that we are supposed to be baptized? Because only Gentile converts are immersed. Only Gentile converts. We have our system of washings and all of that. We, we take what is called the ritual bath, the mikvah. We have all of those things. But to, to, to say... I'm going to be baptized by this, this Jewish uh, prophet? Well, that would be very humbling. That would be saying, we're, we're no better than a Gentile. And, and to do so was to identify yourself as a sinner. It was, it was a way of confessing and forsaking your wicked ways to admit that you were a sinner in need of Messiah. And that was, that was something difficult. But here comes Jesus now, why would he need to be baptized? Listen, John was accustomed to baptizing sinners. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan, according to verse 5, confessing their sins. And here comes Jesus, a man with no sins to confess. So John is there. I want to develop this with you a little bit more. John is there baptizing. Here comes Jesus. And then we remember a little bit about John's background and in order to understand what's taking place here, we need to remember that John was born to godly parents. 
John's mother's name was Elizabeth. She was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Zacharias was a priest. And they were both descendants of, uh, of uh, Levi, and who was a descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. John would have been aware of who Jesus was because Jesus was John's cousin. So his parents, it would seem, undoubtedly had told him of Jesus's how, how he, you know, a miraculous conception because Mary had never known a man. She had never been sexually intimate, and yet this virgin conceived, and, and uh, he would have known of that because his, his mom and dad would have told him concerning these things. And so according to uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 8, uh, 80, John grew up in the wilderness from early childhood. And so if John was in the wilderness from early childhood, this wilderness that's being spoken of, if you're looking at a map, would be to the south into what is called the Judean wilderness, the Judean desert. And then if you look in that area and you look all the way up to Nazareth, Nazareth was about 100 miles. And 100 miles distance in those days was, was quite a distance in a small nation. And so he more than likely didn't have any contact for a long time, if ever at all, with this one named Jesus, his cousin. And that's why in John 1.31, John said, I myself did not know him. When he says, I did not know him, that word know in the original language, I didn't recognize him, is what the word means. I haven't personally met him, perhaps, or it's been so long, I didn't even recognize him. And so John, when he was speaking concerning this, he said, well, I was sent to preach. I was to prepare people to meet, to meet the Lord, but, but I have never personally met him myself. I, I'm preparing you to meet Messiah, a man that I haven't really met. I, I'm simply being obedient to the commission, and I'm waiting for the results. But I haven't personally, I, I didn't know him. That reminds me of something that uh, we see in the book of Job. We'll be looking at this on Wednesday in Job chapter 42, verse 5, where Job says this to God, and you need to put it into context. You've had all of these chapters of debate between uh, Job and, and, and various men who, was, who were arguing with him, and, and Job was presenting his case through the entire book. He finally concludes with a fourth person by the name of Elihu, who, Elihu had, who, who was trying to admonish him and all, and and, and nobody had been convinced by their arguments. And finally, the Bible teaches us how that God himself broke in and spoke through a whirlwind and began to, to speak to Job. And when you go through the book of Job, you see these things. You see that Job was a man that in the first chapter is declared by God to be the most righteous person on the face of the earth. And yet, after God begins to question Job and speak to Job and brings humility to Job... Job says something very interesting in chapter 42, verse 5, where he says to God, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I have walked by faith and not by sight. I've received from the, the tradition of the elders the things that they spoke concerning God. I've received those things, but, but I've never really personally had an, a, a knowledge of you. I, I, I've never really had that depth of a relationship with you. And now that you're questioning me and opening me up, I realize that what I am is, is, is very vile. And so it's possible to have an awareness of even walking faith and not really have a, a deep personal connection yet. And J John had that. John knew that he had been sent for a particular purpose, to prepare the people 
to receive Messiah. But he says, but I didn't know him. He who sent me said, he whom you see the Spirit descending upon and remaining, this is he. So he's been waiting for that sign in all of that. Now, John was a preacher of righteousness. He was sent to prepare people to meet Messiah. He was telling the multitudes, judgment is coming. You need to repent. In Matthew 3, verse 8, the first portion of that scripture, John said, bear fruits worthy of repentance. You got to bear fruits. You got to live a life, a life that has to change in such a way that it demonstrates that you've turned from your sin. You see, John had yet to personally meet Jesus himself, but he was obedient to the commission he received and walked by faith. And so as this is taking place, verse 9, notice how, G how John reacted to Jesus coming to him to be baptized because according to Matthew, if you take notes, it's found in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. According to Matthew's account, a more full account of what took place, he tried to keep Jesus from being baptized. According to Matthew 3, 13 and 14, it says Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you and are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. Now when it says John tried, the original language is a Greek word that means insistently. He kept trying. He was trying to prevent him. He insisted on preventing him. It wasn't like, no, I shouldn't, you know, and Jesus says, oh, no, do it. Oh, okay. It wasn't that at all. It was a, no, I, I cannot do this. It's, it's wrong. It seems wrong for you to receive a baptism that's intended for sinners. I have come to baptize people unto repentance awaiting Messiah. You obviously don't need to be baptized. As a matter of fact, you ought to be baptizing me. Well, as incredible as this man John was, we need to remember that he was a sinner and Jesus wasn't. In Hebrews 7, 26, it says, it's fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's Jesus, not John. So John didn't want to baptize Jesus. He kept insisting that, that Jesus should be the one baptizing him. But Jesus made it clear that his baptism was necessary. He had said it would fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew 3.15, Jesus said, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. Okay, I want to develop this with you a bit. How would all righteousness be fulfilled by being baptized by John? How does that fulfill all righteousness? This is something you might find interesting. Maybe you won't. I do. In the Old Testament, the priests eligible to offer sacrifices were to be 30 years of age. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, take a head count of the Kohathites who are part of the Levites, the priestly class, by their clans and patriarchal houses of those 30 years of age until 50 years of age, all who are eligible for performing assigned tasks in the workforce pertaining to the tent of meeting. 30 years of age until 50. Luke 3.23 says to us that Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age. And so did John. So Jesus waited until he was 30 to be baptized into the sacrificial priesthood. 
And that's part of how you fulfill all righteousness because he was under the law. He lived under the law. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus lived under the law. And that is part of how you fulfill all righteousness. Also, his being baptized by John identified him as Messiah to John as well as others. And because of this, God made a way for John to know who Jesus was. Again, John 1.31 said, I myself didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, when we were going through Mark in chapter 1, verse 7, John had said, there's one who comes after me who is mightier than I. Notice that there's one who comes after me who is mightier than I. He didn't identify this one by name. He didn't say, Jesus is coming, he's Messiah. And that's because he didn't yet know that Jesus was Messiah. Again, it fulfilled all righteousness because Jesus placed his seal of approval on John. Now, John's mother and his father were old. Elizabeth was barren, the scripture says. She's unable to have children. We read the story of that, how that Zacharias, a priest, was praying fervently because even in his old age, he wanted a child. Well, the angel Gabriel spoke to Zacharias and said to him that, your wife is going to become pregnant. And he said, no, no, I don't think so. She's, she's kind of old. Well, Gabriel told Zacharias that, she would, she, uh, that Elizabeth would bear a son. Now, here's something that I love. I want to point this out to you. She's going to bear a son. And the angel said, and his name shall be John. Now, many years ago, as I was preparing a study related to that, one of the commentators and I'm going to trust he was right because I'm about, to, I'm about to quote him, was saying that when you had a child, especially an only child, your first child, a child was normally named after either the father or an immediate kinsman. Somebody related to them, the child would be named after that, that person. In, John, in, uh, in the case of Zacharias, apparently there was nobody in his family named John. So the idea that he should give the name John to a child would have been highly unusual at that time. And yet, the angel said, you're going to name this child John. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because what John means, what the word John or the name John means when it's translated for us, the word John means God is gracious. That's what the me it means. Now, why is that significant? God's grace. Why is that significant? Well, one, John was the last of what is called the Old Testament prophets. He was the one preparing the way for Messiah. So it is significant that grace preceded Messiah. And that's how it works. Because in John 1.16, it says, Of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. So John, grace preceded the one who brought grace. When John was eight days old, in accordance with Jewish law, John was circumcised. And at that time, his father, being filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied in Luke 1, 76 and 77. This is what he did. He said, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin. 
He prophesied over his son. Would to God more fathers were, were doing that. You know, it's not that everyone ever sensed that, that impulse of the Holy Spirit. But there are times you may. I know that. And let me tell you a little story here. It's going to take a moment. It comes to mind. I shared it first service. I'll repeat it. Marie and I had our two first two children. We had our Corinne and we had our David. And uh, my son David was young, uh, still a small baby, when my wife spoke to me, and my, my Marie, and she said to me, Honey, I'm pregnant. And I said, Who's the daddy? No, I said, Oh. I forgave you. I'm in trouble. I don't... She said, I'm pregnant. I wasn't ready. We had two small babies. Two small babies. I wasn't making enough money to, it used to be said, yeah, it didn't have two nickels to rub together. We had a two-bedroom house and one was our room, the other was our two kids, and now what? We're, we're going to have another one? I wasn't ready. I wasn't emotionally prepared for it, and, and I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy. And so it took me a while to adjust to that news, and I finally embraced it. I said, you know, the fruit of the womb is God's reward. Praise the Lord. We'll find a way to be able to take care of this. Then I still remember, and I hope this isn't too personal to share, but my wife was early in the morning and I was in the front room and my wife came walking towards me with her hands like cupped like this, like she was holding something in her hand. And she walked up with tears in her eyes and she said, I just lost her baby. And I looked. And there was my child in her hands, my baby, our baby. I'll never forget us going to the hospital and Marie having to go in, having to care, and they had to do work on her and all of that. I felt so bad. I felt so bad. But the Lord was gracious and he brought healing to us and then she became pregnant again with Joseph, our son. And um, this time I had learned my lesson and not to, you know, not, not to be so carnal and all the things I had to learn. This is a young man, no excuse. But the baby was born. There we are in Pomona Valley And Joseph was born the day before Easter in 1981. And the baby parted the womb. They took him and cleaned him up and put him under that little lamp of whatever sort. In there. Then they bring him to me, and they handed me this infant, my, my son Joseph. I named him Joseph. And I held him in my hands. I still remember doing this. And that's the one time, with our four babies, that's the one time I sensed an impulse of the Spirit and I, 
I remember standing like this, holding him in my hands. And I remember looking up to heaven. This one shall serve the Lord. This one shall serve the Lord. There are times the Holy Spirit can impress you. I, I, fathers, those who are, maybe you have, your wife is preggy or whatever. Keep that in mind. Ask God to fill you with something so that when your baby is born, that you can have a word to speak over him. Zacharias did. This one will go before the Messiah. This one shall prepare his way. And he prophesied over him, which is a beautiful picture of how that happened. Well, continuing... When uh, Jesus was baptized, he validated Zacharias' prophecy over John. You see, in receiving water baptism, Jesus was identifying himself with sinful man. No, he wasn't a sinner, but he identified with those who are. And his baptism was a demonstration of man's sinfulness and need for a Messiah, a mediator. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So Jesus is aware, and that's why we can cast our cares on him. He understands. And that's why, even as our Messiah, we know him to be approachable. In Matthew 11.28, he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. It was a, an invitation. If you're heavy laden, you're, you're burdened by the cares of life and the demands of the religion that, you, that you're holding fast, you come to me and I will give to you rest. You see, Jesus came to save sinners. In Luke 19, verse 10, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Do you remember how Matthew records the story of Jesus, how he'd been invited to Matthew's house after Matthew came to faith in Christ? Matthew had invited him to come to the house for dinner. And how that as Jesus was at the table, that there were many sinners who were seated around him as well as his disciples and, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees saw this and they were outraged and they said, Jesus, Jesus is eating with these people. And they came and questioned his disciples, why is your master doing such a thing. Well, in Matthew 9, 12 and 13, Jesus heard that. And he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, those who are sick, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call the self-righteous who think that they don't need anything, that everybody else needs what they have. I have come to call those who know that they're sinners. So I can save them and change them. Remember when he, when he died, he fulfilled Isaiah 53 verse 12 when it says he was numbered with the transgressors. He was placed on a cross between two thieves. He identified with us. In these things, he fulfilled all righteousness. Matthew 3.15 says that after John, uh, Jesus had said this John, that he allowed uh, him, Jesus, to be baptized. In other words, he he baptized him, and that reveals, of course, that, that John was submitted to the Word of God. Well, when he's baptized, notice verse 10, immediately coming up from the water, 
he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Immediately. That's interesting in verse 10, it uses the word immediately. You're going to see this word uh, used quite often. It says immediately coming out from the water. Interestingly, Mark uses the word immediately something like 11 times in chapter, chapter 1. This reveals that Jesus' uh, Jesus's fast pace uh, was something that would, would minister to the, uh, the Gentiles as well as his obedience to the Father. And the Bible says the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. It didn't say he was a dove. He came in a gentleness. Now this has been called the divine coronation of the king. And what you have here is a picture of the Trinity. Notice verse 11. It says, A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So what we see is the Trinity here. The Father speaks, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit descends upon him. It reminds us of Christian baptism. In Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, not names of, in the name, singular, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to consecrate them to serve God. It was symbolic of Jesus' anointing for ministry. In Isaiah 61, 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for prisoners. That's what Christ does. Jesus brings the good news to those who are spiritually poor, impoverished. He binds up those whose hearts have been broken by a tough life. He proclaims freedom for captives who are who have been captured by sin and its habits, and he releases those who are prisoners. He releases us from darkness. And that's what Jesus Christ has done, and that's what he does. And he's anointed by the Spirit to do that. And again, it says, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. So Jesus is his royal son. He is Messiah. And he's the one in whom the Father delights. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. It was pointed out that at every major point in his ministry, the spirit is at work. The spirit is there at his baptism. The spirit is there, we'll see next time, at the temptation. The spirit is there as he performs miracles. The spirit is there at his resurrection. And his father says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That has never been said of any prophet. They were servants. Sometimes he referred to him perhaps like a friend. But Jesus is the only one who is ever referred to by his father in this way. And in everything he did, Jesus was well pleasing to the father. And that includes his death on the cross. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He always does those things that pleases him. So Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that fully pleased the Father. Now Jesus' baptism looked forward to the cross while we believers look back to the cross. Jesus was immersed in in the river of death, that we might be partakers of the river of life. Jesus' obedience to the Father in receiving baptism 
is our example, and now I'll share a little bit about Christian baptism. His outward demonstration is an example to us of our own outward demonstration. You see, Christian baptism looks back at the finished work of Christ. According to Romans 6, verse 3, when we are water baptized, we are baptized, he says, into his death. So water baptism represents Jesus' death, his burial, as well as resurrection. When we were baptized, we have become totally identified with those events, death, burial, resurrection. The word baptism or baptized in Greek is baptizo, and baptizo represents immersion. It, it, it speaks of us being fully immersed in his life. The word baptized was a common word during that day. If I had white cloth and I wanted to dye it purple, purple dye, put it in the water, then I would drop the white cloth into the water. I would pull it out and baptize that what it was characteristic our what you are full of self as you go into the water and you you down that's your death and your burial when you come out of the water that's a picture of your resurrection burial and resurrection baptism and so what doesn't save you it's not absolutely for salvation did not get water baptized that's because we are saved by faith symbol of faith Peter 321 writing of baptism also said this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus, you go in the water and you come out, death, resurrection. That's called Christism. And so water baptism of your faith in Christ, it shows that the old nature crucified with Jesus, but now you're in him. Again, it's a resurrection. Burial external evidence that death has taken You go to a funeral, and there is the cat. And they take the sit in that open. And that is a portrayal of death and burial. The dirt is put over that. Grass is sometimes grown. You have the, the headstone, and the body is below the ground. Everybody knows he's dead. When you go into the water, death, there'll be people who are watching. This takes place. They're that you're being buried when you're getting water bath. But it also resurrection because you're Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 4, it says, we through baptism into that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So, when a person is water baptized in the Christian sense of baptism, they no longer live a lifestyle identified by sin. In Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? 
No, you, you, no more than that dead person in that grave is capable of lying and stealing and doing all the other things because he's dead. Even so, we are dead also, but made alive by Christ. And when you're made alive by Jesus Christ, you can live for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our baptism demonstrates that we're buried with Jesus when we enter in the water and we're immersed, death and burial. When we exit the water, resurrection. And this newness of life is a sign that we've been born again. We have now demonstrated that we have a completely new heart. If anyone be in Christ, is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In the book of Ezekiel 36, 26, God said this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So when you're water baptized, it's a symbol that God has placed in you, his life. So you don't come and get water baptized, you know, dripping wet and everything, and people are hugging you and taking pictures with you. And then to celebrate, go off to a bar and get drunk. You don't do that. Some of you know those things. That, that used to be pretty much common when I was growing up. The baby got baptized, and then you party at the house. Some of you may have grown up like that. I did. Yeah, weddings were the same way. You go to a wedding, if you showed up at all, most of us just wanted to go to the reception. Why? Because it's a place you drink and party. You know, baptisms, in, when I grew up, were very similar. You go to the baptism, and then you go and drink. Well, that's not how it works. No, when you're water baptized, you're saying, I am dead, I'm buried, and now I'm alive. I am not going to walk in the flesh, I will walk in the spirit. And this is a testimony, an open declaration to those who see that I have come to Christ and I have a new life. And so in a moment, we're going to be going out there, and some of you are going to be water baptized, and some of you, I'm going to hold down for a long time. Who should be baptized? Those who are born again. Those who know what salvation is. Those who have partaken in it. Those who can explain it. Those are the ones that should be baptized. I am openly declaring that I'm following Jesus Christ. John came preparing people. We are baptized because Jesus Christ said in his great commission that we were to be taught these things as the gospel went forth. And he had said, and make disciples of all nations, all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I've commanded. And so he said, and lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the age. So we who get water baptized now are those who have said yes to Jesus Christ. And I want to follow you. And I'm going to go into that water and come out as a symbol of my death, burial, and my resurrection in you. I will follow you, and I will live a life that demonstrates that. Because Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.